And welcome to another episode of The Dice Are Screaming. Oh, oh. Brought to you by Screaming Dice. Yeah, right there. <laughs> and our dice have just cause to scream. That's they, right. They deserve it. They do. <laughs> they have every right. The things they've been subjected to. <gasps> oh. If only they could talk. And boy, you know. Why I'd cut their tongues out. Yep. <laughs> and slap them in a box and nail it shut. And welcome to another Tuesday edition of Topic Tuesday. Of course, we got some topic for you. And of course, thanks for tuning in and sticking around with us. We have a call in tonight from Larry Hamilton. Ooh. It's been a while since we heard from the man behind Follow Me and Die. Follow Me and Die. And, uh, oh, another classic favorite of mine is the They Might Be Gazebos. Or, what is it? They Might Be Gazebos. They Might Be Gazebos. Yeah. They also might be tea houses, too. Every time. Cracks I, me up. I know. But hello, Larry. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, also, hope your weekend was full of gaming goodness, or your week coming up is full of gaming goodness. Let us know how that's going as well. We're always interested in hearing about tales from around the table. So, with tonight's uh, episode about topic, we'll keep you in stitches for a little bit longer. But you probably already figured it out, so we're fooling no one. Yeah, yeah. But it's important to keep up pretenses. That's right. Appearances matter. Save face. Mm-hmm. I have several of them. Hidden in a box. Oh, my. <laughs> well, that does sound dire. Okay. Well, all right. It's not Arya Stark, Baseless Men, you know, but uh, it's the closest I could come on my budget. Ah, well, you know, hey, we got to work with what we got. <laughs> and with that also, uh, we uh, have been talking about some other things coming up here. We've got a nice little rant lined up for Friday, so we'll be uh, hinting at that as well, but... Uh, yeah, well into our 100th episode. Thanks for all the uh, good words, and we're creeping up slowly on our one-year anniversary. Ah, yes, the true one-year anniversary. Ah, how wonderful. Yeah, been at this for a year and working hard at keeping you entertained and full of vibe and vinegar. And so well, so Hopefully well. a few useful tools for gaming slipped in amidst the mad chatter. Yeah. A rambling discourse that we can like to carry on. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to get to Larry. So, Larry had a nice uh, conversation for us, so he enjoyed what we've been doing. So, we'll turn it right over. So, stick around. Hey, fellas. Uh, this is Larry with Follow Me and Die. Just uh, wanted to call in. I listened to your last couple of episodes, including the most recent one on uh, building uh, terrain features, buildings, and so forth, and for some reason talking about a tavern sparked an idea for a tavern that I'll be podcasting about sometime in the future and your episode on quests I had an idea for quests come to mind so another topic for another blog good job fellas keep up the good work hope to hear many more I'm finally slowly trying to get caught up with all the podcasts I'm behind on I'll talk to y'all later all right, thanks for the kind words, Larry. Glad that we inspired you. Uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun working with Pat, and of course, uh, there's the pictures up on our Facebook page. Oh, yeah, some of those uh, diorama quality, you know, they were just outstanding pieces of work that show how much you can do improvising with homemade materials that, uh, you know, creativity is the limit, you know. Right. And there's a lot of good stuff out there to buy right off the shelves. And, of course, want to support those people, too. But, you know, sometimes you just need a 
puppet booth. <laughs> and, you know, where do you find a puppet booth? Commercially available. Well, you don't, so you make it. But with also, uh, we didn't mention too much about it, but I'll just touch it here. 3D printing has also revolutionized our ability to make things real that only exist in our imaginations. And, you know, from little miniatures and diorama pieces to just building your own out of what's available around the house or other materials just sitting in a garage, you can make your game really pop. Oh, you know, I've really got to take an opportunity to watch 3D printing happen uh, Yeah, sometime soon. I, I really got to watch uh, you guys' printer in action. Uh, I've never actually witnessed it, but I, I certainly know of it, and I, I was excited the minute that came into being. Yeah, literally the, the sky's the limit as far as what yeah can create with one of those things, and uh, of course, it does still take a little bit of doing and finagling. You know, you got to work with the software, what's out there and all that. But uh, definitely the ability to just create something that you need, if you just need, like, a specific-looking t- type of chest. Like, you want to make the altar in uh, the back of uh, the Tomb of Horrors. You know, you know that's a, something that people often think of as iconic. But Ooh, yeah. how often do you see it commercially available? Well, for various reasons. Or the gargoyle face uh, with the mysterious starry night in its mouth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Don't go too close. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I hope we didn't spoil anything for anybody, but no, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, our quest in Quest Givers uh, was another good one. That uh, Psst, there, There's treasure in there. Just reach in and grab it. Yeah, just get it. You can't it's see it, but it's there. I, no. It could be the twinkling of gems, or it could be gem-encrusted spikes. You won't know until you get in there. And it's too late. Yeah, it was gem-encrusted spikes. Should have known. Roll to save versus tetanus. Um... <clears throat> so, yeah, there, there is that, but uh, of course, you know, uh, with quests and quest givers, it was kind of an esoteric topic, but uh, glad that we at least got the point across to people, and glad we inspired you, Larry, so thanks again. But of course, what would you expect from... Oh, the fly in the ointment of gaming podcasts. Expect no less. That's right. Well, at least we moved up to a classic phrase. I'm still not over the awkward handshake. <laughs> <laughs> the awkwardly long handshake. <laughs> that moment where it just crosses the boundary and nearly becomes erotic. It just, oh. oh. <laughs> Cringe. <laughs> but all right, we're going to uh, heave to to a little uh, paying the bills sort of action, do a little advertisement, we'll be right back after this with our topic. Topic so stick proper. Around. All right, and we're back after those messages. Thanks for listening in. We were waiting with bated breath. No, really, I've, I've actually got some bait. Oh, you bait breath. Oh. <laughs> Want to try that out? It's like a breath mint. Yeah, well, only if you like sardines. So. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, I'll pass then. Okay. Yep, tonight's topic is going to be storytelling and the player character. Now, I know that you're already probably cringing. Oh, storytelling. Oh, boy. Uh, look. I'm going to just throw in this caveat before we go point by point and into the meat and, you know, potatoes of this. Uh, The caveat would be, if you have a table of players who are absolutely disinterested in storytelling, and they are really combat heavy, you know, what they come to the table for is, we are going to make orc sausage tonight. 
<laughs> well, that doesn't even sound very appetizing. No, actually, no. Uh, this would not be the advice for that table. So, right. you just like right out of the gate, let's just admit not every table is the same, and not every table should have the same aspirations. Every table is different. It's a unique chemistry depending on the group of players you've got in front of you. But for this session, we are talking weaving storytelling into a campaign that ideally suits the players you have. Right, and of course it comes with also another caveat, always know your players, which should be, go, uh, should be common sense and go without saying, but here we are. We have lack both common sense and uh, well, the yeah. ability to discern what should be obvious. Derp. Yep. That's me. Yeah, we, we, we boneheaded it up. <laughs> but uh, reading your table is probably one of the more important skills as a dungeon master. Um, you know, whatever your players seem to like and react to, well, do more of that. Yeah, we've, we've touched on the subject of reactive DMing, where you're being observant about what players seem to have enjoyed. What was the thing that, what were their takeaways from a session where they went, wow, that part was really awesome. I really liked that. You know, it's okay to keep notes, to jot this stuff down, go, you know, or if you're really well mentally organized, just keep it in mind mm-hmm. where, all right, we'll file away that. Uh, they really loved the puzzle trap because, uh, you know, some players, uh, that'll have them pulling their hair out and you're like, it was the worst session ever. Mm. <laughs> I was killed by a chess set. What is this, Harry Potter? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that you can have a bad reaction. Things may go awry, but that's part of getting to know your players. Uh, once you do know them, and you have a feel for what they like and dislike, then you start customizing your campaign expectations around being an entertainer, being a a mixture of storyteller and rules adjudicator. And stitching those two things together is not always easy. It's, it's tough to, to be rule-minded and a good judge of how events pan out, and yet also a narrator who is bringing a story to life. It's like wearing two different hats or riding two different horses at the same time. Well, I think it's a lot easier than just be, uh, dividing the two roles. I think that there's a certain part of being a DM that you're responsible for carrying the game forward. Now, you're not necessarily always responsible for everybody's happiness because, well, if you tried to make everybody at the table of six to eight players happy all the time, you find yourself into a mental, a mental institution very quickly because it's just not going to happen. Not everybody's going to group to the when same When did they thing. let us out of it? Oh, well, yeah, I should have been committed a long time ago. Wonko the Sane. Mm. Out there, that's the asylum. Poor devils. Yep. We're safe in here. No, uh, but that aside, I mean, there is a certain point that you you have to kind of understand that going into being kind of a storyteller atmosphere is a little different than just, you know, interpreting the rules and reading box text. It's a lot of times taking the lead in incorporating your characters or your players' characters' backgrounds and ideas of what they want to see in the story up ahead. Of course, it doesn't mean that everything has to translate to their and fit to their 19-page character backstory. Absolutely. This, this is a truism. There is such a thing as too much. If you 
let one player overdo it, um, you wind up straight-jacketed in terms of campaign options. So you may want to set that caveat out early. It's okay, have a great backstory, uh, and try to throw me a bone and like a couple of tidbits I can incorporate. But try not to tread on the feet of all the other players in the entire core concept of the campaign. Uh, the idea, the, the happy middle ground I like to look for, is being able to weave in parts from each character and have them be perpetual background. Uh, little incidents that they run into, familiar faces, familiar names, uh, problems and crises that erupt that are related to their backstory, but don't absolutely alter the entire course of the campaign. Or follow their absolute goal, or their goals absolutely. So they, in turn, are narrating the script for you. You want to avoid giving too much credence to the player character's background where everything is already determined. You want to leave it up to a little bit of chance, like I did as an example with a character who was playing an Inquisitor, a vampire hunter specifically, who had lost his wife to a vampire attack. Now, of course, in his backstory, he had used the uh, fact that his wife was dead, slain, and I had changed it that she had became a vampire and now was confronting him. Ooh! Nice. And so that put a different spin on it, and of course he was a little, at first, perturbed that I took such a heavy-handed stance on his backstory, but I think the idea was they came across as the story became better because we were both involved. And that's what we're really talking about here, is that each person, especially the Dungeon Master, and each player, when they bring something to the table, the Dungeon Master is responsible for incorporating certain ideas into the campaign. And that's primarily what the struggle is, is you don't want to do too much, but you don't want to let the player also dictate it to the point that there is no point other than that it's already determined and the outcome is certain. Yeah, it, it, the question here is if you have been receptive to players and you have opened the door to having their input in the campaign so that the shape the campaign takes has a relationship with them, that's a great thing. But if any one player winds up dictating things so heavily that you're straight-jacketed, that, you know, like the, the number of places that you can go, the number of things you can do are all going to re revolve around some preset course, that's not as entertaining for the other people at the table. Right. You know, so you... you do want balance there. It is one of those it's one of those tricky situations where you're going to have to negotiate person by person and try to drive home, you know, do a little pre-session uh, as we mentioned with mm -hmm. the game zero or session 1. Yep. Uh, the idea is that you sort this stuff out just before the beginning of the campaign proper and have everybody with a good feel for what they're expecting from this game, but with a lot of question marks still over their head. Because the question marks are where the mystery and the fun and the DM's creativity come in. Uh, and a good narrative should never uh, get in the way of a game. Right, know? and you want to make sure that your players are engaged and they feel like their ideas actually matter, 
but you don't want to let them have too much power so that they can usurp kind of the narrative that you have set. And, you know, that's kind of the both... <laughs> like, uh... A uh, character announces, I was born the king of this land. <laughs> Whoa, all right, champ. Uh, <laughs> well, then the, G- the DM's job at this point is, you have just been dethroned. Welcome to your adventuring career. Yep. Uh, assassins yep. haunt your steps, uh, and your identity must be kept secret until you can accumulate enough power and influence to reclaim your birthright. Now you got a campaign. Yeah, now you got a game, right. Now you got a guy who has to work for something as opposed to, you know, as king of this land, I command all of my fellow players to do my bidding. <laughs> well, tough break, kingy, <laughs> until you're sitting on a throne again. Uh, you got to count on us to help. Now that, that is challenge. And, and there that's are many players re- who do claim that they, they don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be tested and tried. They don't want to be, you know, placed in difficult circumstances. Do not believe them. Yes, don't believe them. And that's, that's the key, what we're talking about tonight. So in <laughs> ever to do this, it requires, like Mike said, a lot of balancing. And you have to kind of read your players, read your table. And also, if you're using, whether you're using homebrew or pre-written, it doesn't matter. Whatever is, if you're buying a commercially available adventure. Oh, yeah, you, you can tailor a commercially available adventure path. But yeah, if somebody says that one of their relatives was a evil wizard, and suddenly there's an evil wizard going to appear in the uh, adventure, feel free to tailor that around. That that was their relative, an evil wizard that chased them out of their family holdings or whatnot. Oh yeah, always fun. And I mean, we've done this with uh, pre-published campaigns before. Uh, you did a terrific job with. Um, Pathfinders, uh, War for the Crown. Yeah, uh, is that the title of it? War yes, for the Crown. War, okay, War for the Crown. War for the Crown. Uh, that all of the player characters in that particular campaign had, you know, relatively loosely filled in backgrounds. You know, they, yeah. they had little connections to the community in the area, uh, and they wound up nicely stitched together into the campaign proper. Uh, other examples would be uh, in the more classic D&D scenarios, the Village of Hamlet, Temple of Elemental Evil, uh, Slaver Stockade, uh, Giants, Drow, Ultimate Mega Campaign. You know, this is mm-hmm. multiple modules, enough to span an entire campaign for years uh, as the characters travel from first level to very high level. And in the course of that, uh, it's not like you can't take side quests or have recurring NPCs uh, in your base of operations wherever this campaign is set uh, that relate to non-module related stuff where you're, you're not talking about the written material for a minute. You just came back from mopping up a bunch of giants and you come back to your home base and that's where you have that interlude where the players can experience something related direct to their character's backstory. You can stitch those pieces in uh, piecemeal in between major modules. And in fact, if your writing game is on par and you you feel up to the task, uh, do not hesitate to edit the material in existing modules and say, you know what, I'm changing out this enemy. 
It was going to be a Drakalisk, but I feel like the beholder in somebody's backstory is a more appropriate mastermind enemy. 100% acceptable. Right, and that's all it requires is just a little bit of forethought and work. And, you know, again, a, right from the get-go, knowing your players, knowing their stories. So always be involved with getting your players started on a backstory. And then you'll see players in future campaigns remembering that and coming to the table with new expectations. Because once you do something, they're going to want to see you do it again. Oh, yeah, and this this is probably another caveat moment where, you know, I'm not going to advocate for or against this. I also happen to like and enjoy campaigns that are combat heavy. Uh, you know, I can do a pickup group and sit down with a batch of dice and uh, make orc sausage, as I had <laughs> said before. I, I'm okay with that. Does that require a grinder? It, <laughs> the blade Cuisinart strikes again. Ah. <laughs> I set my swords on puree. Ooh. <laughs> uh, I'm okay with that. Those are great games. I love those, too. I have no qualms. Uh, but Randy makes a great warning here. If you open Pandora's box and you deliver a really high level of entertainment, you may be called upon to maintain that level of excellence over and over again. And that is not an easy thing to do. There are going to be moments where you're like, I'm just not feeling the mojo. Ah. Right. You how know, do sometimes I Sometimes you just that? show up and you're just ready to run what you have in front of you or what you have prepared and, you know, the players want a little higher expectation. Maybe you're not up to that because one of the dirty secrets of DMing is we're only as good as our last game. And also, we always have the next game to improve upon. So never feel pressured overly to perform to a complete expectation, but always keep in mind to be improving your game and living up to at least some of the virtues that got people interested to sit down and play with you before. Yeah, that, you know, revisit your past successes. That's right at the very beginning. We mentioned watching, you know, what what struck pay dirt. Uh, you know, what made people react and respond positively. Uh, keeping tabs on that will help keep the inspiration flowing because you kind of know what wells to draw from. Okay, the... Uh, not every episode is going to be as climactic as, uh, say, for instance, a, a red dragon on the lip of a volcano with, like, you know, you're just a deck save or a tail slap away from falling into a pool of lava. Okay, pretty awesome, pretty epic, you know, very uh, movie climactic ending kind of thing happening there. You're not going to be able to nail that every time, so no. you know, let's not beat ourselves up over that. Under no circumstances. No, but sometimes you do have a flat session. You know, you're just, you know, you're not feeling best or just real life and got you harried and run down a little bit. Oh, that would be me. Well. Oh, my gosh. Whenever you do show up and you feel it's a little flat, just remember next game to pep it up a little bit. You know, and you're only as good as your last game is, of course, meaning that you've got next one to prove yourself again. So always keep improving and never get stuck in too much of a rut that you can't climb out of it or show who you really are. Never let the players run roughshod over you by exclaiming that, you know, they want this, that, or the other thing out of your campaign because you did it before. Mix it up, surprise them. Yeah, don't get predictable. Um, or 
if you're predictable, then they can at least predict that they're going to have a pretty good time. Yeah. But no more than that. You know, like, uh, what that good time will consist of should be the mystery that brings them back to the table. And using the player background helps. <laughs> because sometimes the kimono should be closed. I must learn to master this art. <laughs> I was just going to say, you, you really need to work on that, uh, your kimono closing skills. Nonetheless, I also think it's important to mention that the reason why we bring this up as a topic rather than a rant is because there is a certain rhythm and method to this, that you can use your players to help invigorate a campaign. I uh, recently put up on our Dyson Screaming my gaming advice of the day about that every campaign should be as exciting as the very first one you ran. Ah, and yeah. that's going back to the source. Now, sometimes it's hard to, you know, okay, so my first campaign, or my new campaign should be just like my first campaign. It's a lot of the elements of wonder and mystery that drew us to the game. Never let that die. Don't leave it by the wayside. And sometimes the best sources for that are the backstories that your players can provide. Because they're really coming to you with a store backstory and saying, this is what I want. And it may be a hodgepodge list of things listed in a 19-page preamble that could have been a short story <laughs> or fanfic edit. But... It also has in there seeds that you can mine. And use those, take them carefully out, and look at them, and also be ready to change them if you need to. Yeah, basically the, the core concept would be, as we have so often said, great DMs do not borrow, they steal. Uh, but while you're harvesting everything you can from movies, television, video games, uh, manga, you know, what have you, you can also harvest from your players' creativity. There is, you know, there's rich soil there just mm -hmm. waiting to be tilled. Uh, and there is no reason to leave that off the table. Uh, their input is equally useful. Uh, and tapping that well of creativity, it cannot hurt. No. <laughs> it can only help. And it may seem uh, system neutral, which it is. It's yes. absolutely system neutral. It's both viable and sustainable for a long period of time in a dynamic gaming group where everybody has an ability to project themselves into the game and see like, hey, you know that, that evil wizard we fought? Yeah, that, well, that was the dude who killed my great-grandfather all those years ago. Really? Wow. And he's still around. Yeah, it looks and like the clock is ticking on his lifespan. No, it, you can harvest this for science fiction games as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, any, any gaming setting, this is more in the universal DM advice. Uh, and this is a topic Tuesday, so there's sort of a linear progression here. <laughs> uh, and I, I wanted to end with arc-based storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, let's see, we've right. got, got enough time to... Oh, yeah, we got plenty of time. Good, good. Uh, this was like the third factor I really wanted to hit. I mean, we, we touched bases on, uh, you know, players and their ideas having value. And then the limitations that you should place on this. Uh, and then the last segment I really wanted to hit on the stitching together of storytelling, uh, in portions, and it's kind of a rule of threes thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, rule three. You know, every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. 
uh, and they should always include some degree of conflict. Uh, and there's usually a MacGuffin involved. You know, like there's mm. there's a driving factor, something that pushes them to accomplish a goal. Remember, so, a MacGuffin can also be a person, a place, or a thing. Yeah, it, it can be anything. The MacGuffin could be the lost heir. Or an idea. Uh, or an object. You know, it, it just, yeah. It, I, sorry. Yeah. Oh, perfect example. Uh, but there has to be something people want to accomplish. And it should be a goal that you can play keep away with for a fairly long period of time. Now, the way to keep that from getting boring is to give consideration to what stages will they accomplish their goals in. Like, what is the goal they have to achieve to start the process of achieving their goal? Right. Uh, if the obstacles that you place in front of them become a part of the story. Now, once you've harvested ideas from your players, uh, you weave those into becoming part of the obstacles on their journey to whatever you've created as your long-term goal. Overthrow the King of Dragons, you know, just... It, right, if you're using a pre-prepared module, this is pretty easy, as a lot of writers do this already, but if they haven't, or if it's a kind of a free-form thing where you're just kind of taking this commercially available module this week and kind of weaving it into a narrative, again, always be looking for places to insert those overarching goals that the players have set for themselves or you have set before them. Yeah, and you want them to wrap up shortly before the big campaign ender so that you've got the nice, neat like bow-on-the-package ending without the loose threads. Uh, so if you're loose, very loosely sketching out where the campaign is going to go in advance, uh, like a story arc, just like you're storyboarding for television you know, or uh, literary reasons... In the storyboard, you would have uh, your beginning, your humble origins, uh, the period where people get to know each other, and the introduction of their long-term goals. Uh, and then you move into the obstacles, the conflicts, uh, the... Adversaries. Very, yeah, adversaries, the forces at work against them, uh, and perhaps even their own frailties, mistakes haunting them, you know, issues that may erupt. Uh, and then in that third and final phase, uh, you move into resolving. Uh, the resolution, yeah. Yeah, you get those small resolutions before the big final resolution. Uh, and I used, I have only used this technique in just two campaigns, uh, eh, maybe two and a half because one was principally done using pre-written modules, uh, and the other two were handwritten campaigns. But it's the same story arc process that you can use over and over again, and the material changes every single time, uh, depending on what the players contribute. But if you use the same technique to frame it, uh, you can basically plug it in like a, an algorithm, so to speak. Mm -hmm. oh. <laughs> yeah, I tried to run my Death Watch as like a TV series where, you know, at the end of every arc, you know, they would be returned back, like at the end of a sitcom, everything would be returned back to normal. They'd retire back to the Watch Fortress. 
And, you know, everything would be fine and cue the laugh track and the credits. <laughs> but during the middle of that time, inexplicable horror, destruction, and warfare would be waged <laughs> by uh, the heroic space brains. The, the laugh track is cued whenever my, uh, my, my death watch... Uh, Your blood is, angel apothecary. It, the, the blood angel apothecary is knitting because it cleanses the soul. It focuses your mind. Yeah. <laughs> Purchase me of negative impulses. Mm. Very important. <laughs> yeah, especially with the Blood Angels. Yeah. No, but... Uh, but know. I tried to use kind of a sitcom, <laughs> if you will, without the comedy, of course. But, hey, Warhammer 40,000, there's plenty of a comedy in the critical charts. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen that, you know, there's also that kind of episode... You know, they did this, and now they're back to the watch station. They would always return back to the watch station, waiting the next mission to be sent. To, uh, they were sent out on, and of course, that goes pretty close to the DM as a, a producer. And it's not an unfair allegory because you can also look at it like there could be a mini series involved in this, or a long term plot that is overarching that's unveiled only through multiple seasons, all uh, Buffy. Oh, yeah, where, you know, clapping back to something that happened early on. Mm -hmm. uh, really? The arch-villain was the elderly seamstress back in scene one? No way! Who would have thunk? <laughs> but she's the one who sent us on our first quest. Well, yeah, hoping you would die. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, always be looking for ways to keep your players' stories involved in your campaign. Sometimes you have to change them, and sometimes you can just use them whole cloth, but... Always be on the lookout, and I always impress the people when we say to that storytelling is part of DMing, that it's just not all LARPing and ad hoc, diceless role-playing. It's about finding those elements of what brings us back to the table and those elements of campaign fun. Fun of playing a long-term immersive campaign with a group of friends. Hey, there's a lot of fun being had by people just sitting around the table talking about things that they watch on TV and joking. But the game also is a part that creates a whole new dynamic, just like people watching the same TV show and talking about it the next week. Oh, very much so. So always keep that in mind, but uh, I think we pretty much walked around the subject. Or did you have anything else you'd like to add? No, I think we hit the big points that I really, I really wanted to hammer home. Uh, All right. And we, we closed with the... The organization of storytelling, which, and once again, remember that caveat. It's not a requirement for every table. This is not an advocacy stance. No, no, no. You know, I have no particular bias uh, for or against storytelling. Uh, nor do I have bias for or against uh, slaughter best. Yeah, combat should be only. There's nothing wrong with either one. But use ones with that appeal to you and your players and... Hey, you'll never go wrong. You, you can't miss with good material. That's right. So again, as we wind down here, I want to thank you for listening in. And of course, if you like what you heard, just let us know on our Facebook page, The Dice of Screaming, on Facebook, of course. Or you can uh, get a hold of us at Twitter and give us your thoughts, opinions, and uh, let us know directly what you liked, what you didn't like, or maybe things you'd like to see. And as always, keep those call-ins coming. Just do it on the Anchor app and uh, you can leave us a nice little message, hopefully a good one. And, uh, <laughs> and accept, let us know how we are doing. We accept chains of four-letter words as well as kindnesses. That's true. <laughs> so, all right, that'll do it for us. And until next time, may, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. We're out. <laughs>
See ya.